in building a software company, you have to be spot on about the pain points of your customer. If you're off even by 2%, you can just end up shooting yourself in the foot and not seeing the kind of success that you want to see. I'm Alex Freeman, and on the show today, we have Ed Warren, who built Zippity as a way to simplify managing his small business. Today, Zippity is one of the only SaaS companies built with the smallest businesses in mind. Ed just partnered with Square and his venture capitalist backing, quite a leap from a mobile detailing business. He's going to share how he took on a market that most SaaS companies pass up and turn into a winning company. Today, he's going to share his strategies and answer questions like how he turned his detailing business into a software company, how he got private investors, how growth has impacted his daily tasks, how he acquires clients, and how he manages his business. Let's find out how to turn your expertise into a software business. Ed Warren, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. To get things started, uh, when did you start Zippity and what does the company do? So I started Zippity back in 2017, just finishing up business school and launched it as a mobile detailing and mobile mechanic business to try to solve the problem of how frustrating automotive car care is for consumers. And I think we all know it. It's just as just an outdated industry and really logistically inconvenient. And we said, let's let's find a better way here. That has now become a, a software company. And so what are the main challenges of running that mobile detailing business that your software helps owners solve? That's right. So we started as a service company and then due to the pandemic and a few other factors we can we can jump into later in the podcast, we ended up pivoting into a software company. And that is a really hard challenge to make that change, but we saw a market opportunity, an unmet need for mobile detailing businesses and frankly mobile service businesses in general that was unmet. It starts with scheduling for us. Like we've really focused our company around helping these little business owners give customers a much more modern scheduling experience that actually works. So most most scheduling is done over the phone. It's hard to get a hold of service providers and then the service provider has to manage every dynamic themselves. They have to think about which you know which area am I in on Monday, which area am I in in Tuesday as they're providing mobile service. Uh, Zippity's scheduling algorithm actually solves all that. It factors in drive times and it makes sure that all your appointments on one day are in are in one area and it minimizes drive time and that enables the pro, the business owner, to let customers self-schedule online. And that opens up all kinds of possibilities because now the pro can just (laughs) focus on service and the customer can get instant gratification with a real booking online in seconds. So that's just one of the kind of three major areas, but it's it's the most important one. And then uh, you you mentioned the pivot uh, being at least partially COVID related. So let's, let's go into the pivot and talk about one, why you ultimately made the pivot and what the kind of big steps were in that process. Yeah, so making the decision to pivot is a is a very weighty one, right? I mean, pivots do not always go well, right? And when you have a business that's working, to try to change it dramatically takes, frankly, some boldness, and uh, you know, and you need to be really, really thoughtful about that. And so, for us, what we were what we were finding is that we had built our service model primarily around the workplace. That was kind of our innovation in the space. Was we said, okay, we will deliver mobile detailing, mobile mechanic services while the customer is at their place of work. So we would partner with an employer and deliver services to their employees while their employees were at work. It was logistically easier for us because all the employees were in one place and it was super convenient for the employee because they were going to be at work for nine hours a day anyway and their car would be fixed uh, automatically 
while they were while they were just inside. So that was that was the business model, and it was working it was working well. It was still kind of a niche business model, right? Because we only partnered with really large employers, but it was solid. And then COVID hit, and everybody stopped going to work, and you know we had our revenue dropped by about ninety percent. And we had looked at ourselves and said, okay, what do we do next? Do we do we just wait this out? Do we try to start servicing customers at their homes? And you know, those are both very real options, right? The, the first the first one was not a great option. You know, <laughs> waiting waiting for the pandemic to end would have been a disaster. And then the second one of you know, do we go to people's homes was a totally legitimate option, but it was going to be problematic for us because it required a totally different go to market approach. We had previously acquired customers by building relationships with employers and then marketing that way. And to change our entire go-to-market strategy to be consumer-oriented would have, you know, was something, you know, we had to we had to change dramatically no matter what. But if we decided that if we were going to change everything that dramatically, we should do the business model that we thought had the biggest and best long-term success. And we had seen this opportunity to help small businesses in a much broader way with software that they could they could run from their phone in the field and really take all our lessons and expand in a much faster and bigger way. And so we said, let's make this let's make this bigger change. Let's take this opportunity to do the big thing. And how did that the your previous experience in your in your former business model help you when you switched to this software provider SaaS business model? Yeah, so I mean the main thing is it gives you a lot of credibility. Right, you know your customer base, and so many people who are starting businesses want to know their customer base, right, or think they know their customer base. But even if they do know them, they don't have that that intimate knowledge of having been their customer, right? And so, we could get on a phone with a potential customer and say, "Yeah, I know. Isn't it so annoying when the customer no shows, right? Or isn't online booking such a pain in the butt because?" You know all your all your appointments just you know don't leave any drive time, and so now you have to call call back each customer and reschedule. And so we could we could commiserate on those pain points, and that allow us allowed us to one have better credibility and two build solutions that were more tailored. And in building a software company, you have to be spot on about the pain points of your customer. If you're off even by two percent, you can just end up shooting yourself in the foot and not seeing the kind of success that you want to see. And do you think that's the primary difference between Zippity and other software companies, or are there other things that help you to add extra value for your customers? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's so many ways to answer that question, but I think having credibility in the space is a major part of our story and a major part of our success. And then obviously we have product differences, right? We've really emphasized being able to do things in an automated and modern consumer way, which is a nice differentiation. But the biggest thing by far is that we really have become a mission-driven company in this effort, right? You can make money building a software company, and, and that's great, and I hope we do. But we ultimately put our flag in the ground on saying there is a problem in our economy that small business owners are struggling to get ahead, and technology should be this powerful force to help the absolute smallest businesses not just do as well as the big companies, but leapfrog them, right? Like small business owners mm-hmm. are way harder working than just an average employee because it's their entire livelihood, right? And so they should be better than the biggest companies, but they often have outdated technology, broken processes. It's, you know, it's just as a consumer, it can be frustrating to deal with 
owner operators because it's hard to get a hold of them. And that just shouldn't be the case. And we said, we have an opportunity to do something way bigger than provide some software. We have an opportunity to actually enable small, hardworking business owners to thrive in the modern on-demand economy. And that's something that affects millions of small business owners and something that we can really get passionate about. And having that passion and that focus allows us to actually say no to other things that could distract us, right? We get to actually, we get to say, you know what? Even if a big company is trying to throw money at us right now, we're going to say no to that because our mission is the little guy. And that gives us focus and that builds a bond with our customer, which is really different. The software that you sort of brought to market as you made that pivot, was that something that you had developed internally previously for the mobile detailing business? It was, right? It's you know it's still a far cry from a modern software platform, but we had a strong but small technology team which had built out a product for ourselves and our in-house operation. And that, you know, and then we said, okay, well, we have this. We've developed this product, which is really powerful, but we're only using it ourselves. And then we said, okay, let's let's repurpose that for others. There's a lot to talk about on that because <laughs> taking your existing tool and making it available to the broader market is a completely different challenge. And so I guess my, I, I have many follow-up questions because, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, what was the initial impetus to develop that in-house software rather than find some existing solution? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because I don't recommend it to other people. <laughs> um, even though it's what we did, it is, it's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs make a mistake of doing. They say, I wish I had something that could do this. And then they go build it. But the problem is, as an entrepreneur, you have so many things pulling at your attention. You need to focus all your attention on the absolute most important thing. And other things can be you know, less than perfect, right? But the thing that you would do really, really well, that needs to be perfect. And everything else can be less than perfect. And so you know, if an entrepreneur says, hey, I want to build a business and I want my own proprietary software platform... That takes a lot of money and a lot of time. I mean, you're talking about software developers who make you know six figures easily. You have to build a product. And then once you build it, you got to maintain it. If you outsource it to try to save some cost, now you don't know the quality of the code. It's probably not scalable, right? And so there's just, there's a lot of problems to building your own in-house software. And if you're in the business of delivering services, having a whole wing of your company that is very expensive to build out a product that honestly may or may not be better than the out-of-the-box tools in the market right there is a very questionable decision. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about about some of those costs of developing the software and what all goes into that process? Yeah. So when you you know build a software product, there is obviously you know, just an initial, there's just, the problem is there's a high fixed cost, right? Unlike other things, which you can put a little bit of money to and then you can turn on or turn off. Software is something that needs to be built, nurtured, maintained, updated. You either need an in-house team or you need an outsourced team that you trust and you have it will be around for a while and you can do upgrades too. And so for us, we said, look, we think there's a chance to use technology to really differentiate our offering here. And we went all in on that. And again, because we had big aspirations, you know, maybe, maybe that was appropriate, but from a, from a fiscal standpoint, it probably wasn't the wisest choice in the short term. And ultimately, you know, you you're you're talking about okay. Now you have to have probably a handful of software developers. You know, software developers again make a really nice income. So you've got to now build out that team. They have to build the back end architecture. They have to build the front end architecture. Sure, they can you know do some of those things with off the shelf products, 
But you're talking about a team that needs to have management that needs, you know, you can have maybe one or two developers in the early days, but if you want to build a product that's going to make customers happy and be robust and be maintained, you often are talking about a QA, you know, someone to do some QA work. You can outsource, again, parts of these things. You can get creative, but you're just not building a software team with less than a handful of people. And for most small businesses, that is a really high fixed cost to take on right at the beginning. What was the biggest challenge of making that pivot from being a detailing company that had built an in-house piece of software to now we're going to be a, a SaaS company bringing this product to market? Yes, I think this is the one that catches so many people off guard. It definitely caught me off guard. I, you know, I looked at our product and I said, our product's awesome. It works great. We'll just, we'll just kind of flip this over to everybody else and we'll be off to the races. And the reality is a software product for your own company is a tool. It's one tool in a toolkit, but it's not the entire toolkit because it's designed exactly for your processes. It works in only one way, and that is the way you've built your business processes for. When you then take your software and deliver it to other people, they then have to be able to use it in their business process, and they don't do things in exactly the same way. So now the product's got to be really flexible. It's got to be dynamic. It's got to have configurability. And and now we're talking about not a tool, but a platform that can be configured, optimized. And that is a very different thing. And it doesn't feel different because you're just doing the same functional things, but making something that's scalable, robust, flexible versus just does one thing in one way are two totally different challenges. I also uh, would love to hear you speak about how you how you built your software team because obviously you know when you enter into that tech and software space you start to be competing on some level with the Googles and the big big massive corporations that those are how are you bringing them into your small business Yeah I mean probably the biggest frustration and hardest thing that I've had to deal with is hiring technical talent. It is a really competitive space out there. And you want to bring in people who are extremely good because writing good software is hard. They're logic puzzles, right? Not anyone can do it. You have to have just really, really smart people, but who are also collaborative, are going to see the vision of the team. And then layer on top of that, what you just said, which is you have major companies out there, right? West Coast software companies that are paying these folks hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, it is really hard to attract and win talent when you're competing against companies like that. And so you have to, as an early stage company, do probably two things. And the first is you got to find people who want to be at a startup. People who say, you know what, I could be at a massive company and have kind of a cush job with predictable hours or I could be a part of building something new from scratch. And that's what I want out of my career right now, because you're just not going to beat when you're trying to hire, you know, trying to win the talent war. You're not going to beat the big tech companies with just traditional comp packages. It's just not going to happen. And then the second thing is work your personal networks. This one's tough. And I think kind of stinks for junior entrepreneurs because you don't have as big a network, but to get someone to join an early stage company, the tough news is there's a lot of reasons why they shouldn't, right? Chances of that company going out of business are high. It's all dependent on the founder. And so really it comes down to your credibility in the space and your personal network and your ability to attract people who are going to trust that this is a good career choice for them. And so the reality is like you should be able to, based on your networks and your credibility, go to the Go to people who are, want to join you, who want to work with you, who want to build something from scratch. And that, that takes some time to build that out. 
What advice do you have for for those junior entrepreneurs who maybe need to work on building that credibility? I think you have to figure out how you're going to build the credibility if you don't have it already. And the best way to do that kind of in the in the space is, you know, this is kind of typical advice, it's not just my advice, but is start small, build something that works, that finds a pain point, that gets people's attention, and then you can start that builds a little bit of credibility. And then you can maybe hire an outsource resource and you do a little more and that builds even more credibility and more attention. And then, you know, people who maybe wouldn't have given you the time of day at the beginning now go, huh, this is this is pretty fascinating. I, I actually really like the mission that you're on and it seems like you've gotten a lot of traction. Let's let's talk. Maybe I'd, I'd want to work here or maybe I'd want to invest in this. But you've got to start with really quick wins that are low cost because you can't can't be spending a ton of money in those early days to try to build that credibility. And then once you kind of get that team started and in place, how are you as a leader continuing to work on one, I guess, keeping people focused on mission and making sure that the team culture remains collaborative as you continue to work on the software product? People want to be a part of something special. They they don't just want to go to work and check a box and go home at the end of the day, right? They want to enjoy their their team members. They want to know that what they're doing matters. And so spending that extra time as a leader of an organization, thinking about how do we build a collaborative culture, an enjoyable culture, there's no simple answer to that. But I will say that I think the collaborative culture at Zippity is our defining difference. It's the thing that really sets us apart. And we have put a lot of effort into that um, in very specific ways. Personally, I have a set of values. I have values or principles, I guess, that I've honed over the last few years that helped me at least set a tone for the team. First, it's hiring really good people, right? That, that Before you even get into any kind of principles or values, you just got to get people who are really competent and enjoyable to work with. And cult, that, that kind of those good vibes spread to others. If your core founding members are grouchy loners, you're going to have a really hard time building a culture of uh, you know, of collaboration uh, on top of that. So those initial people matter a ton. And then, you know, some of the, the values and, and principles I try to, uh, I try to instill in others and emphasize that Zippity is one I've kind of come up with is this concept of singular ownership collaboratively built. So it's this idea of you got to have somebody in charge, but you've got to do it in a way that makes the tent large and brings a lot of people into the decision-making process so that everybody feels like they have input and so you have somebody to kind of steer the conversation and how you build things, but you're always bringing in the inputs of others so that you it doesn't feel like it's just being done from the top down. And that balance of direction from one person versus bottom-up input is, is something that's really tricky to balance, but I think that's the key to building a high-functioning team that's also collaborative. I want to take a second and kind of shift our conversation a little bit over to a few marketing questions. Um, and to kind of kick that off, I want to, I would love to hear some of your top marketing strategies for generating new leads. First of all, you, you have to completely change that part of the business when you switch from being a service company to being a, a software company. It really is a different beast, especially in our case where we had been selling through workplaces and that just all went out the window when we switched. So a lot of learnings there. Your go-to-market strategy and the way you generate leads the first thing I'll say is it has to be appropriate to the kind of business you're building. If you're building a software business where the average contract value is $100,000 a year, right? You have a handful of customers and they pay you a lot of money for something very important and very, maybe very customized. 
that's an enterprise deal. And your go-to-market strategy is going to look completely different from Zippity's go-to-market strategy, which is get the word out to a lot of little business owners, right? So, and then, and then don't, you know, you don't charge them a lot. You charge them very little money for something that's very powerful for them, but in the grand scheme of things is not a large contract. And so that means your marketing costs have to be appropriate to the, what they call the lifetime value of the customer. That's the the total amount of money you kind of on average expect to get out of every customer. And so for us, we've really focused on marketing strategies that are low cost, that allow us to get in front of a lot of people in a way that gives us credibility through partners and ultimately acquires customers for a for a low price. You know, these are all, you know, jargony business terms, right? But customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, that there's a ratio there if you want your you want as high a lifetime value to the cost of acquiring customers as you can possibly get. So that's an LTV to CAC ratio is what that's called. And in our case, the cost of acquiring customers, we've driven that down, which is really important to our strategy by, you know, first starting with content and SEO, right? Like most people know to go online and search for the thing they want. And we said, let's make sure that we rank really highly for the kind of people that are a perfect fit for our software. And so we built a lot of content with a lot of keywords that are very, very, very targeted on the type of buyer that we are best fit for. And so that creates a really harmonious dynamic in which the person who's buying sees a result in you know their Google listing results seems perfect for them, right? They say, oh, I'm interested, you know, software for a mobile service business. And boom, Zippity is up high in the top of those listings. And building that kind of content strategy is a is not a quick strategy. Like you got to put a lot of time into that. You got to really show that you're a thought leader in the space, that you've got a lot of people clicking on those things. You got a lot of traffic and engagement and that builds more success. So that's not a short-term strategy, but that is one of the absolute best strategies for finding customers who are very oriented to what you do for an, in a very low cost way. How how big of a team do you have working on your content strategy? And what sort of tips do you have for someone who might want to begin the the long process of implementing that strategy? Yeah. So, I mean, the good news is this, unlike the software side of things, can be done, I think, in a much more achievable way, right? Like whether it's going to Upwork and finding a, a content person, right? A copywriter who can just crank out a lot of content for your website and your and your brand. That's a very achievable path, right? There's tons of really high quality c- copywriters and content folks. And you can you can really start to move the needle with that when you do that. And so that's just creating the content. But to be honest, it's going to be hard to come up with a good strategy if you aren't also smart enough about the like how, how what you should be writing, what the keyword should be. And there are some great online tools that actually allow you to see how much traffic there is for different keywords out there. And so you can pick a strategy of saying, okay, these keywords don't seem to be very competitive for other, you know, for my competitors, but still have a lot of people searching for them. I should build content that optimizes for those keywords. So getting someone who knows how to do that analysis and steer the content is, is again, very important and not that hard. There's a lot of people that have the skills. You can get an outsourced marketing agency. You can find someone on Upwork or you can bring someone into your team. But that's a great way to get started. The key though is that you need to recognize that this is a six-month, 12-month, 18-month journey, not a one, you know, one week or one month journey. On other forms of advertising, what's kind of your typical monthly spend and where are you making that spend to get the best ROI? Yeah, so we've really turned down our pay-per-click 
advertising. There's certain elements of it that have done well recently, but our big picture company strategy is much less focused on spending money on ads, much more on spending money on the team to do the content, as well as to build partnerships. So we know that people value authenticity and credibility in this space. And so we we have been very thoughtful about saying, let's find partners in the space who people already know and trust, who like our product, and let's create partnerships with them. And they talk about us, we talk about them. It's mutually beneficial. And that helps our target customer feel better about and, and frankly believe that Zippity is something that they would actually use because this partner who they already trust is recommending them. And so we spend much more of our time on partners, influencers, folks in the space who already have credibility and trust, and, and we build our, our relationships with them. That's going to bring us to a, a, sec, a section of our show that we call our Fan Blitz questions. These questions right. come from our YouTube channel uh, community. So if you are out there, uh, want to check out Upflip on YouTube, join the community. You can submit questions for future guests on the podcast. Uh, so here we go. Let's, let's dive right into these questions. Uh, number one, what is your favorite business book? Yeah, there's plenty I could recommend. One that has always stuck with me is Measure What Matters. I think it's by John Doerr. He was one of the guys who really popularized OKRs, Objectives and Key Results. It's a it's a framework for making business decisions, which gets the whole organization aligned around the same thing. And I, I just I can tell you, I am a big fan of the OKR framework. He talks about it in depth in this book, really powerful way to not to get everyone to think about wait a minute what are we doing how does it all tie together what's the big picture exciting aspirational objective and what are the key results that we're going to bring that to fruition and it gets everybody much more focused and focus is huge when you're trying to do big things in a short amount of time why do you think only a handful of startups succeed there is it's hard it's so hard right i mean you you have to step back and remember that you're trying to do something that other people have tried to do before and are currently trying to do right now, and not everyone can succeed. So the ones who succeed, I think, have a remarkable amount of grit, right? I mean, I I probably should have quit and give up many, many times over the last few years, and I, and I didn't. I got really lucky hiring some outstanding people, and I, I built some relationships with mentors and investors who have been very helpful over the years. So and it's really hard to get all those things to come together, right? And you got to get lucky on your on your you know market fit. You, you may have a product that's great, but if it doesn't really align with the customer need, the market need, it can kind of languish in mediocrity for a while. And then all of a sudden you're out of money and you're out of time, even though you, you think you could have fixed it. So you got to be really focused on trying to nail that product market fit quickly. And then if it's not working, change as fast as possible so you don't waste time. Tell me about one not so great habit of yours that you want to get rid of. <laughs> I don't, well, I'll tell you probably a not so great habit that I don't want to get rid of. I refuse to get rid of. I'm a. I love doing some risky activities in my free time. I'm a. I'm a backcountry skier, uh, ice climber. These are hobbies which I think my board doesn't like that I do. <laughs> um, and. Uh, you know, you know whether it's skiing off the tops of summits uh, in the backcountry uh, or, or climbing big, big lines in the mountains. I just, uh, I, I love it too much. So I refuse to get rid of it, but I know my board would like me to stop doing it. What is the most outlandish purchase you have made? Oh man, uh, this, I mean, I don't think it's that outlandish, but I bought a, 
you know, I bought a 1986 Volkswagen Vanagon that I lived out of for six months. It has got a big rainbow stripe down the side with a Hobie cat on it. So that's pretty ridiculous. Incredible. <laughs> what would be the most important quality in a potential business partner? Uh, that they're all in. They're not just doing this because this is kind of interesting or that they have some skills you don't have, that they want to see this idea succeed with every ounce of their being because it's going to get hard and people are going to want to quit. And if your co-founder doesn't care as much as you do and isn't all in, they're probably going to leave. And at the end of the day, for a good potential business partner, you need them all in. The delinquents and, and probably a lot of us would like to know how you start from the bottom and make it to the top. Oh, man. Uh, you know, there's so many ways to answer that question. I think we've covered a lot of it here. I, I, I think there's a lot of just investment in yourself, right? I mean, the reality is you don't end up at the top by chance or luck. It's a, built on a lot of good personal habits, on investment in yourself. If you're wondering why you haven't made it to the place you want to be, first step is to look internally and say, okay, Am I awesome at the things I need to be awesome at? Do I need to put more time into this? Do I need to get better? It's kind of the boring answer, but the reality is there's just a lot of hard work that you got to put in to yourself, to your education, to your skills. And then when the times get tough, when the hard decisions come, you're a more well-rounded person to be able to overcome those and you're able to weather them. People will trust you. They'll stick by you. And that's that's all just from being a high quality, honest, hardworking person, right? And that's, there's kind of hard, there's no easy way to skip that process. And Zach is wondering how to reduce churn in a subscription business. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, churn is really important. I mean, it's, it's everything and it can cause a, cause a big problem if you, don't, if you don't solve it. For those that don't know, churn is when, you, when a customer joins the platform, decides not for them and leaves. And that can happen for a whole bunch of reasons. And some churn is not a problem, right? Like, you, you know, your, your, your business, your, your software isn't for everybody. So it's okay for it to have some churn. So what we've done is we've focused on building personas around who is a perfect fit for the company, who's a medium fit for the company, who's a bad fit for the company. And we, we put personas on every single buyer that comes through the platform. And if we have folks who are leaving, who are in our ideal persona, we have to do some really honest self-evaluation about what's wrong with our product. Why was that not meet, meeting their, their needs? And then we really focus the company on building those features out, talking to those pros, getting them for feedback, getting feedback from them so we know why they, why they left, and then putting that in, you know, building, building those features into the product so that it works for the next person. But really focusing on who it is that you really, really want to keep and who it is that you don't helps you narrow your the scale of the effort to update the product and minimize churn. That's going to do it for our FanBlitz questions. Uh, again, if you head over to YouTube, find Upflip, join the community, you can send in your questions for future episodes of the podcast. And a few more questions from me. I'd love to hear about what systems or standard operating procedures that you use in your company that have had the biggest impact on your revenue growth. For us... Uh, we had to we had to mostly redo those after we pivoted. A, a few stayed, right? We use Slack for our internal communication. It's a it's a great collaboration tool, and it integrates really nicely with other platforms as well. So, you know, we've we use Slack, Google, the whole Google suite of products, which I really like. Again, from a collaboration standpoint, both are really really great. I mean, Google products you can be building spreadsheets, integrating them in the slideshows. People can all be working simultaneously on the same thing and it it fosters innovation. So I'm I'm a big fan of those two products. In terms of revenue, 
We ended up using HubSpot uh, instead of Salesforce. Both are really strong tools. But as our business was focused more and more on little business owners that were coming to us rather than when we were seeking out, uh, HubSpot was a better tool. They're a little more focused on inbound than outbound dynamics. And again, it all integrates really nicely. So you can, you know, HubSpot, you can track where your leads are coming from. You can create automations to follow up with them. Uh, you can then push all that customer information to Slack so that there's a notification when there's a customer that needs to be responded to, and you can do it instantaneously from Slack to HubSpot. So building these you know, modern tech tools that allow you to both grow your business and collaborate really well uh, and all integrate together is a, is a powerful thing to do. And then you also recently started a, an integration partnership with Square. Can you talk about how that partnership developed and share some advice for other business owners on securing big name partnerships? Yeah, so that one came about because we had just seen what our, our customers, we call them pros, uh, what our you know, our pros had were using and wanted to use, and they had disproportionately chosen Square already. And so we said, you know what, it, rather than try to get them to use a different payment processor or a different system, let's let's make this as easy and seamless for them as possible. So it, that got us focused on Square, and then we re, you know, realized that there's a chance for this to be a really positive two-way dynamic with Square, where we can bring Square new pros, and then we can deliver an even better experience for those pros and and their end users, their customers, if we're if we have an exclusive deal with with Square. And so we um, we approached Square. We we talked about our desire to do a partnership here. How we were basically saying to all our pros, "Hey, you don't have to leave Square. Zippity is just Square with superpowers. You can you're already running your business on Square. Now you can." keep doing that, but now you can optimize for the scheduling problem. You can have two-way text messaging. You can do all these other communication scheduling and customer interactions that are very specific to mobile service businesses as kind of superpowers on top of Square. And that was really attractive for everybody involved. And so you know, Square, Square was very interested. We started talking and formalized the partnership, which um, will be live. Um, right now, we, you know, we have kind of behind-the-scenes integrations. The, the full launch is coming. Uh, in a couple months, and you'll see us in the in the Square App Marketplace. We're we're not listed yet, but you'll be seeing us soon. What funding strategies have you used to build Zippity? We've been venture backed from the beginning, which I don't necessarily recommend for <laughs> folks. When we were a mobile detailing company ourselves, we got some venture funding from some strategic investors. So, for those that aren't familiar with the space, you know, strategic venture capitalists are often big companies that have venture capital arms to them uh, because they're interested in a certain type of technology or, or service delivery. And we found a couple of big name companies that were really interested in this more modern, seamless on-site car care experience. And they were willing to make some investments in the early days. And then as we as we became a more kind of general software startup for small businesses more broadly, we've brought in kind of more traditional broad-based venture capital investors. But um, that that kind of dynamic of who the investor is has changed over time. Can you talk about the that process of bringing in those investors and what that maybe looks like for someone who hasn't gone through it? You know, it's it's a it's a hard process, but it's not impossible, right? I mean, the key thing that all those investors are there are a lot of investors that want to put a lot of money into a lot of companies. So it's there, the money's there, but there's only certain companies that are a good fit, right? The modern investment theory is basically put money on companies who you think are going to make 
have the potential to make an enormous return on investment. And to make an enormous return on investment, you have to be able to scale really, really fast. So that's why software companies are so attractive to investors because software can all of a sudden be across the globe, right? In 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 months, not not in decades of growth. And so that is that's really attractive. So if you have a company that could be a great company that could make a lot of money, you could sell for you know millions of dollars. That that's great. The problem is that's probably not a good fit for a venture capitalist because they're thinking, how do I change the world? How does this become a really, really big company? So just make sure that your company is the type that could scale quickly. Otherwise, you might find yourself in a situation where you've taken on money from investors who are expecting a return pr- pretty soon, or at least on a, you know, on a timeline, a very, very big return on a short timeline. And that just may not be the nature of your business, right? If you're a service business, it's really hard to start hiring and training technicians all over the world, right? That is a those are years and decades of work to build that out, and so that's often not a great fit for venture capital businesses. And then, how did you go about building relationships with those venture capitalists and future investors? Yeah, so after you've kind of established that it's a that it is a good fit, either for strategic reasons or for kind of traditional VC reasons, you a lot of these venture capitalists, you know, they're typically going to say, you know, get it, get a mutual introduction, cold emails are not a great strategy. You know, it's, it's kind of too bad. You, you know, you kind of wish that they, they would respond to any, any email that comes in, but at the end of the day, they get a ton of inbound requests and they need to know that this is legit in some way. And so they use personal networks as a way of filtering out a lot of folks. So finding someone, you know, in your network who knows someone who's a, who's an investor is a very helpful way of starting to open up some doors for you there. So, so building that network and leveraging that network is really important. That being said, there are other ways. There's some great accelerator programs. There's angel investors. So the accelerator programs are just a way to basically say, okay, you've got an idea, but you have no idea what you're doing. And you're probably going to just go around in circles and waste a lot of time because you don't know what you're doing. And they will, these accelerator programs will give you, will accept you. They'll often give you a little bit of cash, uh, take a small cash, a small equity position, but give you mentors, investors. They'll work on your pitch. They'll use their network. They'll introduce you to a bunch of investors. So those accelerator programs are, can be a great way for someone who's who just doesn't know how to approach this, but this gives them all the tools in one program and that can be very powerful. You should beware, right? Some of these programs are are more credible than others. It is, you know, you have to really check, wait, how much equity in my business am I giving up? What are you really giving me? So you should ask those skeptical questions, those clarifying questions. But as long as they're a, a reputable program, it, an accelerator can be a great way to get a lot of mentorship, a lot of help in something that may not be your area of expertise. One last question for me. What's the, what's the biggest business lesson you learned this last year and how are you using that to improve your business today? This one's pretty straightforward. And that was... Until we decided that we were going all in on the owner-operators, the smallest businesses in our space, not until we said no to absolutely every other market opportunity did things really start to take off for us, right? We had we had opportunities to work with big companies, medium companies, really small companies, and trying to service all of those meant that our product was 
our product and our team were distracted. You know, our focus was spread in a lot of different places. And it wasn't until we said, you know what, there is one mission and one mission that we care about more than anything else. That is creating a software product for the little guy that helps them join the modern on-demand economy and win. Like until we just said no to everything else and focused on that exclusively, things were just kind of hung up and weren't moving as fast or efficiently as possible. And then when we did have that focus, it was just like a spotlight all of a sudden got shined on the one direction we wanted to go and the whole team started rowing in the same direction. Investors, some said, nah, I'm not interested in that goal. But others said, I've been thinking the exact same thing. I'm really excited about that too. And it just allowed us to find the people, the investors, the efficiencies to all all go in the same direction. But it was only after we said we started saying no to the things that weren't in our focus. So the power of saying no, I would say, and you know, power of saying no and the power of focus are really, really powerful. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip podcast. As always, join us over on YouTube at, at Upflip and join us on the Upflip blog, upflip.com slash blog. And every week on this podcast where we're talking to entrepreneurs in all sorts of industries about how they are running their companies and how you can learn from them. So make sure to join us. Ed Warren of Zippity, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks so much for having me. 